welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week we're coming at you a little early. It's a Sunday morning. There's. Uh, I wish we could have opened with uh, that Maroon 5 song, Sunday Morning. That would have been fun. Uh, but we don't steal music anymore because, you know, we don't want to get sued. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not not about, like, paying that copyright infringement lawsuit life. Right? Yeah. So we're coming at you this morning. It's a, it's a short week. We figured we didn't want to have you wait until Wednesday to review the game. So we're going to have a little quick Sunday morning podcast where David and I are, true, true story, we're both wearing Texas football shirts. Uh, I guess something to do with the Red River shootout yesterday. Uh, we're both drinking pour-over coffee. I'm actually drinking it out of an Australian ceramic mug that, uh, that David bought me for my birthday. Uh, and, and yeah, we are definitely riding the same AM train at this point, <laughs> despite the fact that we're in a couple different physical locations. It's kind of weird. Uh, you know, normally it's been, it's like, this is the last thing in our day, you know, having a couple of beers during this. And now it's like, oh man, I'm like, kind of wish I was still in bed and having some coffee. And, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a different, uh, recording environment, I guess, but, uh, it'll be fun. It, it's actually kind of nice to do this yeah. like this quickly afterwards to only have to worry about one game instead of having to both recap and preview a game is really kind of cool so hey it should be it should be fun it, it should be fun indeed and since we are both wearing our texas shirts my question to you david is if you watched the red river shootout it was an oklahoma win where the score was much closer than the game actually was Charlie Strong's defense is not a defense. It's basically a wet paper towel, and that's, that's giving it a bit of credit. So at this point, if you're the Texas AD, do you fire Charlie Strong at the end of the year? I mean, I, I, I certainly won't sit here and claim to have paid close enough attention to know whether that's like the, the right thing to do or not. I will say like I can see the justification from a sense that uh, he is supposed to be a defensive guy like that's kind of his background that's really what you're hiring him for you know outside of the the normal like um managerial stuff that that you have to do as a head coach which is obviously important at the college level especially but defensive guy defense is awful just completely abysmal and he's now had what three years to bring in just top recruiting classes and get his guys there to to make that defensive system work and it's still terrible so if if he can't make that one thing that he's supposed to do really well he, he can't improve that area like what is he good for uh he's good for keys to victory i guess i don't know um <laughs> i don't think he should get fired but luckily this isn't a ut podcast so we're not going to spend too much time on it uh instead let's switch gears and talk about the rundown normally we've got a whole week of stories and nfl stories to get to but this week the number one story the primary story coming out of this loss of the cardinals game was the fact that Colin Kaepernick is reportedly restructuring his contract so that he will give up some injury guarantees this year for an opportunity to become an unrestricted free agent next year. He's going to avoid his deal. Now, this was originally reported by Ian Rappaport, and every time I think of Ian Rappaport, I think of Michael Rappaport, uh, which is an interesting thing in my head because <laughs> Michael Rappaport's just a much funnier dude. If you saw him on any given Wednesday, it's it's way more entertaining than the Ian variety. Also, but would be strange if he was breaking news. Um, yes. So, I mean, just a lot of strange things about that. <laughs> um, so, it, it's the, the details, obviously, are, this isn't official. Details are not out. But it's some combination of Colin Kaepernick giving up injury guarantees, but instead getting back the ability to GTFO at the end of the year. And so I think in order for, for us to, to really unpack this, there, there's a couple things here. But really, the first thing is, is it time now for Colin Kaepernick to start? And in order to talk about that, we first have to talk about one Mr. Glenn Babbert and how successful he's been in this offense in a segment that we're calling the Poop Flakes. <laughs> David, why do we call them the Poop Flakes? Um, oh, man. It, it's just when you watch Babbert on tape, um, which I don't recommend like, don't do this. If you don't have a reason to do this, like don't do this. I wasted like half of my college football Saturday. I could have been watching, you know, doing things like watching the red river, red river rivalry. Wow. Uh, get that one out. It's early. This, all right. Uh, first of all, it's not a rivalry. It's a shootout. Second of all, Gus Johnson did the exact same thing. 
Like he was doing the same thing because they're calling it the Red River. Uh, oh God, it's not rivalry. They, they show it, yeah. I mean, that's what it's titled like on TV. Like that's what they show it as now. I know it's like it's been the shootout forever. Oh, that's and they, like now they're calling it the Red River Showdown. That's what it is. It's the Red River Shootout. Whatever. Let's be real. Yeah. Um. So watching watching him play, it's just like it's it's so bad. But each play is kind of bad for its own unique reasons and and just kind of its own little snowflake if only those snowflakes were made of poop that's that's really or how you get there if you're walmart chocolate pudding uh <laughs> did you see what walmart did walmart made a halloween masks for kids that were the poop emoji and they and they were marketing them as chocolate pudding masks or like chocolate pudding monster or something like that so there's gonna be a there's gonna be a gaggle of kids this halloween with literal poop face uh, if they come to my door, I'm going to give them lots of candy. Um, you get extra candy for your poop face mask. Um, they don't think we're going to know what that is. We don't know what that emoji is. Come on. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. So, so talking about Babbard is is tough because I feel like we do it. I, I mean, we try to avoid it whenever possible, right? Like it, we've spent a lot of time talking about it over the course of last year and, and through the early parts of this year, and. Like the the problems aren't new. Like there's nothing that's changing week to week. Like he's the same guy. Um, you know he is inaccurate. Uh, he misses wide open guys. He has this sort of unwillingness to throw downfield unless dudes are just completely wide open. Um, and, and even then, it can sometimes be difficult getting him to kind of pull the trigger on those throws. So, uh, and, and we saw it. I mean, we've seen it now on this same concept, uh, which is the the Saints concept that we've kind of talked about a few times this year. Um, and, and the big part, the part that he, the throw that he keeps missing on this concept is, uh, ultimately the fourth read on a play, which is the backside post. And I would say off the top of my head, he's probably missed what should be four touchdowns on that play. Maybe, maybe more. Um, it's, it's just not even close. Like he has, you have a dude, Rod Streeter in this play is getting open, like is wide open. And if this throw is on target, like he's running into the end zone, um, probably untouched. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Rod Streeter doesn't quite have that breakaway speed and gets tracked down. But I mean, it's a it's a big play, probably a touchdown. And again, this is like the fourth or fifth time on this exact throw that he just hasn't been close. Like he's not even in the ballpark. And there's a bit of talk about, you know, oh, how much is, is Ch- this on Chip Kelly? And is it Chip Kelly's scheme? And I think David said it perfectly when we were talking about this pre-show where he's like, you're getting Rod Streeter open. There aren't very many offenses that are able to scheme a Rod Streeter open. And yet that, that's exactly what Chip Kelly is doing. And it's just Gabbert that's missing the throw. Now, he's inaccurate over and over and over again on these concepts. We see it every week, this week. Um, I tweeted out the play if you want to get a visual for what we're talking about uh, at, on Twitter. But he's also hesitant. He's missing wide open receivers. But even when his first read is wide open, he's missing it as well. This week, it was on a levels concept. I tweeted this play out as well. But on the levels concept, which is if you're familiar with the concept, it's what uh, Peyton Manning used to basically tear through defenses throughout his entire career. But the, the first read is going to be an in-breaking route on the left side from the slot. This route is wide open immediately, initially. When Gabbert hits the the back of his drop, all he's got to do is throw the ball and it's wide open. But instead, he hesitates, he waits, a little bit of pressure comes across the edge on Trent Brown's side, he flips out and ends up leaving a clean pocket. And he ends up scrambling and gaining a couple of yards, sure, so maybe it looks like a positive thing, but he missed a much better option. He missed his first option. And, and that's what really like an average quarterback would do. It's just that Babbard is not an average quarterback. No, no, not in any way is he average. And, you know, that sort of decision making is something that we talked about, um, you know, a lot with, with Colin Kaepernick and, and, and looking at just because you end up getting positive yardage on the play when you scramble doesn't mean that it's a positive player, that that's the right thing that he should be doing, right? We're, we're looking at process, and that's what's going to ultimately determine, you know, how consistently successful he's going to be. If you're, if you're consistently making the wrong decision at the time and passing up the open receiver downfield to take off and scramble, sure, that might work out for you, and you might be able to pick up some yards and get a first down conversion or something like that here and there, 
But over the long haul, that's going to lead to more bad plays, right? You're, you're not going to get those yards that you need on the ground uh, as often as taking the, you know, the open throw down field. So those sort of decisions, when you, when you add that to the fact that he just can't, like the accuracy is terrible. He, he's just not close on, on a lot of these throws. Um, it's, it's hard to really come up with a case as to why he should be the, the quarterback. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's probably, if not the single worst starting quarterback in football right now. I mean, he's in the conversation among like three to four guys. Uh, he's, he's down there. Any sort of, you know, measurement that you want to pull up, like it's, he's at the bottom of the list. Um, it, it's, he's just not a, a, a quality quarterback. Um, he's never shown the ability to do this. Like, Again, this isn't a new thing. He was drafted in, what, 2011 um, at this point? He wasn't yeah. an accurate passer at Missouri. Like, he's never shown the ability to do this at the NFL level, and there's no reason to expect that to change anytime soon. So ultimately, we're talking about Glane Babbert, who is inaccurate. He's hesitant. And one thing we didn't touch on a whole hell of a lot here, but I, I tweeted out some plays and have been doing it for a bit, uh, where he just leaves a clean pocket early. He just scrambles for no reason. And we'll talk about that, too, like in the, you know, we're going to touch on like some pass protection stuff because that was kind of, you know, something that was a concern this game coming out of it. I mean, seven sacks, I think, was the final total. So, yeah, I think we'll we'll be able to to definitely touch on that. And it's it's obviously another thing that's just not going in his favor. They've got a situation that's ripe for change. It's not as though Glenn Babbert has maintained or built a case for why he should be the starter. So now switching to Colin Kaepernick, Basically, we would say that it's definitely the time to do so because what Colin Kaepernick offers you is not a guarantee that things will be better, but he offers you potential, which is what oftentimes backup quarterbacks will offer you. But in this case, it's proven that he has been able to operate as a quarterback at a much higher level than Glenn Babbert has. And if he is indeed healthy, which I think he is, I think just with a vegan diet, you're probably not going to get back to 235, and that's okay. <laughs> you're going to go the Arian Foster route, right? And you're going to injure a hamstring. You, you enjoy that. But, you know, in terms of actual health, I think this is a quarterback that has proven that he can play the quarterback position at a much higher level than Blaine Gabbert has or Glenn Babbert, depending on your proclivities. And, and there are a couple of things that we think that Cap has shown that he can do better that will do well in this offense where he's just not going to give you a, a lower or worse case quarterback in this in this point at this point in the season. Yeah, and I think it starts with you know kind of that deep accuracy. We've seen now um, just a number of situations in which Gabbard hasn't been able to hit these guys. I mean, the the numbers for him throwing not even the the deep deep throws like over twenty yards in the air, but even just throws over ten yards in the air. Um, is just he's he struggles like he he just can't consistently put those passes where it needs to be um, and if you remember I mean it seems like a long time ago now uh, especially with everything that's happened over the last you know two three years with this team but when Kaepernick came uh, you know first into the league and, and first got that opportunity as a starter the thing that really separated him not only from Alex Smith but from you know most of the other quarterbacks in the league was how consistently he was able to kind of hit those deep passes I mean um, I went back and kind of looked because uh, in 2014, like one of the big problems that they had that year um, was throwing the ball downfield. That was Kaepernick's worst year in that regard. And, and so I was able to kind of pull up some of the numbers that I had then. And I mean, he was the most accurate passer on throws over 20 yards in 2012 over that half season. And then when you look at him the following season in 2013, uh, I think he was fifth, um, fifth or sixth, like right in, in that ballpark. Um, so you're talking about a year and a half, right, of of evidence of of games that we've seen Colin Kaepernick do this. Like we we know that it's there. Now again, that went away, especially in 2014. 2014 was was really kind of a poor year for him in that regard. And then in 2015, um, it was kind of in the middle. Like he was kind of middle of the pack on, on deep passing, but he had some other issues that were going on there. So you know the the question is different with Kaepernick, right? There's no guarantee that that's going to to come back and that he's going to be able to, to throw the ball deep the way that he did in 2012 and 2013. But we've seen that it's there, right? It's, it's, we've seen him do it, which is a big difference from what we've seen from, from Gabbard. Uh, it, it just, that's never been there for him. And so there's no reason to expect it to with Kaepernick. There's at least the hope that he could regain that form. You know, there's certainly no guarantee and, and there's no guarantee that by making that change at quarterback, that things are suddenly going to be amazing offensively. Like 
that's probably not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at, at potentially making that switch right now. And we said this in 2014, I believe, as well as 2015, but Colin Kaepernick isn't such a good quarterback that he's going to be like an elite quarterback and raise the performance of everyone around him. But if you can give him solid protection and you can give him time, then he is able to find those deep receivers and he is able to get those balls to land in there with some accuracy. So within a, an, with an offensive line that can protect him, he can do well. And that's been one of the problems in 2014 and 2015 is that the offensive line kind of went to shit. Now, Colin Kaepernick is also better outside of the structure of the play. When things begin to break down, Colin Kaepernick is able to make things happen. Blaine Gabbert is not. He is able to, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, able to run for zero yards, which ends up as a sack. Um, and so I think you've got a player that is better with deep accuracy. And Chip Kelly's offense is an offense that likes to take deep shots down the field. He loves his four verticals. He loves the wide cross. He loves the Saints. He loves... Not the Saints, the team, but the passing concept. He, he loves these shots down the field. Colin Kaepernick can do that. When things break down, Colin Kaepernick is better. And if you look at him in the ground game, I think that, that there are some ways in which he will probably play it differently than Blaine Gabbert, but he's definitely no worse than Blaine Gabbert on the zone read runs. So for all of these reasons, it, it, I think it's definitely time to see Colin Kaepernick as the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Now, I think what's interesting here is is what should the expectations be? Because at this point, we're talking about an offense that is definitely leaving points and yards on the table. This is, statistically speaking, based on DVOA, the worst offense in the NFL right now. But it's not because the offense, it's not because the scheme is bad. It's not because of bad play calling. And it's not even because the offensive line is terrible. It's mostly because of the quarterback. So if you get a quarterback who comes in and plays better than Babbert, what should we expect from the offense moving forward? I think really the, the best case scenario that you can um, reasonably expect, you know, um, from Colin Kaepernick, given what we've seen from him, you know, in recent years, because obviously the stuff that happened in 2014 and 2015 happened as well. And we have to kind of give that equal weight to what we saw in 2012 and 2013, right? It's a, a basically an equal sample of good Colin Kaepernick and bad Colin Kaepernick at this point. So, there's certainly no reason to come out and say, yeah, he's going to be the same guy that he was, um, you know, during those NFC championship runs. But I think if that happens or if he gets somewhere close to that, right, maybe not the same level, but uh, is is a clear improvement over Gabbert. Um, I think you're looking at an offense that could reasonably be a, a slightly below average offense. Right. So in DVOA terms, looking at a, a, somebody in the late teens, you know, that kind of 17, 18, 19 range. Um, I, I think is kind of a reasonable best case scenario because at the end of the day, like the, there's still not a lot of talent, right? Even good quarterback play is the fastest way to like improve your offense, but these receivers still aren't very good. Um, you know, they, they don't have a lot of talent at the skill positions um, and the, the run blocking from the offensive line still hasn't been great. So there's not a big reason to expect, even if Colin Kaepernick comes in there outside of maybe, you know, you mentioned some of the zone read stuff, Okay, maybe Kaepernick is able to rip off a you know a bigger run or two than than Gabbert was able to. Um, you know, I don't know how reasonable it is to expect that either. But uh, I, I think you look at the running game, and that's probably still going to struggle, right? Like unless the the Fortnite's offensive line just kind of makes a massive turnaround from what we've seen through five games, uh, I think that's still going to be a problem. So there's still going to be limitations with this offense, um, kind of regardless of what they're getting at quarterback. But again, making a leap from one of the worst offenses in football to slightly below average offense is a, is a really big, significant leap and, and should help this team considerably. Now, I, I mean, I think the takeaway here is that you, you shouldn't expect this offense all of a sudden to be a top 10, top five offense that's going to solve everything. And oh my God, we're amazing. It's definitely, even if Colin Kaepernick gets back to the form that we hope he can get back to, it's still going to be an average to below average offense. I think yeah, all things considered. Absolutely. So I think th those are probably the, the ceiling in terms of expectations simply because of a lack of talent at positions like wide receiver and the lack of ability to run block. Now, ultimately, I think what, what's the shittiest thing about all this is that if Colin Kaepernick does restructure his contract, and it looks like he will, there's, there's no way, I think, that Colin Kaepernick is the long-term starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. 
at this point, one of three things is going to happen. He's going to come in and he's going to do well. He's going to come in. He's going to do so-so, kind of all right. Has some flashes, but also doesn't play perfectly. Or he's going to play like absolute dog shit. Those are the three kind of spectrum scenarios. If he does well, he's going to leave for more money. Someone's going to pay him. Like the New York Jets are going to pay him. You know, someone's going to say, hey, let's go ahead and throw a bunch of money at you. And he's like, I'm out. He gone. Or he's going to do so-so. But the fact that he's restructuring his contract at this point means that he wants out. He doesn't trust this organization. He doesn't trust Balky. And even if he does have a good relationship with Chip Kelly, he's probably going to be like, yeah, but honestly, Kelly, in a year and a half, if you don't turn this around, York's going to fire you. Balky's still going to be here. I'm out. Or he does poorly, in which case we end up, we being the franchise, end up cutting Colin Kaepernick, and he ends up in signing somewhere else. So I think any way you slice it, this is probably going to be the last contract that Colin Kaepernick signs with the 49ers and the absolute worst case scenario for this franchise. And what I think will absolutely be rock bottom is for the 49ers to have the coach and the offensive system to get the most out of Colin Kaepernick and they lose him because of absolute mismanagement from Trent Baalke and Jed York again. And here we are with no edge rusher, no quarterback, no offensive talent, with a coach that can do it, and we are the 49ers. Man, that's really depressing. Um. <laughs> sorry, sorry to bring it down on a Sunday morning, man. But that's, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I'm just like, I'm, I'm thinking through all the scenarios, right? I, I, and and that's, yeah. that's the likely outcome. I, I the likely agree. outcome is yeah. that he gone. I, I mean, I think definitely if you're putting odds on it, right? Like, what's the most likely thing to happen? I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think there's one maybe we'll call it one and a half potential ways that he stays. I mean, I think the most obvious is that if somehow bulky is fired, um, which seems unlikely that again, the 49ers will both want to keep Colin Kaepernick because he's played well and fire bulky because if Kaepernick plays well, right, the team like exactly. improves and wins a few more games than they would have otherwise, um, which kind of keeps bulky's head above water essentially. Um, so that one seems unlikely. And then I think there's, you know, kind of a long shot chance that um, Kaepernick, because again, Ka- Kaepernick, I think is a, is a very smart guy. And I think he knows kind of what's going to be in his best interest. And and I think if he does come out and play really well and kind of clicks with Chip Kelly, I think there is a long shot chance that he says, you know what? I've dealt with Balky in this, you know, quote unquote business relationship for as long as I have now. I can just kind of continue to make this about business, not talk to him. I don't need to interact with him, but this is the best place for me from a football standpoint. Again, don't think this is the most likely. I don't think that there is a high chance of this happening, but there is a greater than zero chance of that happening. I think that's one of the reasonable scenarios. Um, so beyond that, though, I mean, yeah, it's it's really hard to see a scenario play out that keeps him here um, beyond the season, which, you know, depending on how things work out, could be a very depressing end, uh, which, which kind of is. Well, I know at the end of last season, um, I, I kind of put Colin Kaepernick's chances at staying uh, at about 20%. I think you and Fooch had it at below 1%, and he ended up staying for one more year. So anything above a 0% chance of happening means that, much like Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, uh, that there is still possibly a chance. a chance. That's right. Um, Samsonite, I was way <laughs> off. Uh, so let's talk about the Cardinals game, though. Because this was a game where it was a very winnable game. It was an absolute winnable game. So let's talk about our three takeaways because there are, I think, a couple of really interesting storylines to note through this game. And the first one is going to be what the hell happened to the protection for Glane Babbert. He was sacked seven times. Now, that's, I think, a uh, like 300% increase from the number of sacks <laughs> that we had in the first four games. Because I think we had given up two sacks in the first four games combined. And one of them was from Marcus Martin. Marcus which Martin doesn't really yeah. count. Yeah, I mean his 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 middle name should at this point just be Turnstile, like Marcus <laughs> Turnstile Martin. I think is really what what his nickname should be. And so now at this point, you've got a huge increase, which I think seven is more than three hundred percent increase. But you whatever you get the point. The offensive line at the end of the day, the the takeaway from this game is that they played okay. Three of the top four pro football focus grades for the game 
were given to offensive linemen. You've got Joe Staley, Jeremy Curley, Trent Brown, Andrew Tiller, and Daniel Kilgore. So that's really four of the top five were given to the offensive line. And, and so how do you reconcile that with seven sacks? I think part of it was the game situation. Part of it was the team we were playing. And a lot of it was on Glenn Babbert. Yeah, I think, um, you know, first off, Babbert was, you know, I, I think one of the, the things that was really kind of strange is, is the one thing that he's done kind of well outside of uh, his running contributions this year has been, you know, getting the ball out quickly, right? Like the ball leaves his hand, whether that's the right decision or not, like that helps his offensive line out a good amount and, uh, you know, minimizes the number of sack opportunities that there are. And that wasn't really the case. He held onto the ball quite a bit longer in this game. Um, and then there were also quite a few plays where he just kind of left these clean pockets and ended up trying to scramble and make something happen. And that led to, um, you know, sacks that are technically sacks, but it's really him running out of bounds, you know, just right around the line of scrimmage, slightly behind the line of scrimmage. So you get it, you get it a sack, but it wasn't really something that you would pin on the offensive line. You know, I thought that the one player, uh, up front that did kind of struggle and that had some bad moments was Zane Beatles. Like he really uh, had a rough time with Clayus Campbell in this game. Like Clayus Campbell kind of abused him. Um, Clayus Campbell actually like beat Joe Staley inside for one sack. So this was, yeah. um, you know, Staley is, is still clear far and away the best uh, player on this offensive line, obviously, and has been very good this season still. But, um, you know, he had a couple of moments in this game where he didn't look great, but still on the whole, uh, you know, of course, over the, the full number of dropbacks, still very good. Um, and so I think that it was actually fine from a pass protection standpoint um, up through about three quarters. The other the other issue that it kind of crept up like once or twice were protection issues from non offensive linemen. Right. So um, there was a play, for instance, where on drone drone and Garrett Selleck were uh, in one of those two back looks. And they both missed blocks and like the two players that they were supposed to block just kind of sandwiched Babbert in the, in the, in the middle of the pocket there. So you had some stuff like that that weren't offensive line related. Um, and then it got to a point in the fourth quarter where things really kind of got out of hand. Like uh, I think more than I think four of the sacks, three or four of the sacks came late in the fourth quarter um, yeah. once the game was kind of out of hand and. And the Arizona defense was really able to just kind of pin their ears back and, and go full pass rush, knowing that the 49ers had to pass in those situations to cap, uh, to catch up. So and they they uh, they actually started blitzing, I think, heavier there, too. So the one thing downside I, I think I would point to with the offensive line outside of Beatles performance um, was how they handled kind of some stunts and in, in different games that the Cardinals were doing up front. Um, Chip actually mentioned this in his, I think, either postgame presser or the one that was the day after. Um, that that was kind of an area where they struggled late. And that part, I think, you know, kind of we're not going to look ahead too much uh, in, in this episode, but going up against a Rex Ryan defense that, you know, Rex can get very creative with his pressures and, and does a lot of different things up there with a defensive line like that. Um, so that will certainly be something to monitor, whether teams really try to attack them that way and, and bring a lot of stunts in games up front. Um, but overall, I think the offensive line and their pass protection is still kind of one of the relative strengths of this team right like still um i think was was pretty good in this game outside of a couple of plays um and wasn't nearly as bad as kind of that seven sack number would would lead you to believe so i counted about two or three sacks and i put sacks in air quotes that were a result of babbert kind of running and netting zero yards and then you add that to about three or four that happened in in, in the fourth quarter that gets you close to about seven um those stunts were concerning i think I tweeted a video where Beatles ends up not handling an interior twist all that well, and that gave up an interior pressure in a sack. And then you also had basically in the fourth quarter, it was the, the TE stunt bonanza on the right-hand side. And, and one person that I did watch super closely was Josh Garnett because he came in in the second series in the fourth quarter and basically played exclusively in passing snaps. And he did okay. He, he wasn't spectacular. He wasn't amazing. Um, but he got much better at handling those TE stunts after about the third one that he saw in a row. Um, and, and so what I thought was interesting, and we'll see what this looks like moving forward, is that he came in for Tiller and didn't come in for Beatles, which if you're going to put your first round draft pick in somewhere, I would think you'd put him in for 
the uh, the the least effective lineman being your left guard, Zane Beatles. But hey, apparently he taps that center's leg real well, <laughs> real real well, um, because that's that's apparently his contribution. So the the pass protection definitely held up, even though it looked bad on the stat sheet. I think it's not something to be concerned about long term, unless you have a heavy stunt defense, in which case it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like. But overall, not terrible, even if the stat sheet looks bad. Yeah. Now. The second takeaway is going to be the pass defense. So, or the pass defense and the run defense, right? Because I think overall, the pass defense performed as expected, but the run defense still got shredded. And it's in large part because of an underperforming defensive line and really, really terrible inside linebacker play. Yeah, I mean, the run defense um, is is concerning at this point, but I think it kind of, you know, makes sense when you really kind of dive into it and, and and look at things a little bit closer. I didn't notice as many plays, you know, we've talked about this is probably what the second or third time this year we've talked about the run defense and kind of their struggles. Um, and a lot of the problems before that really stuck out were more like alignment issues, right? Like not getting lined up in the proper gaps or leaving gaps unaccounted for um, and, and leading to big runs. This was really a problem against Dallas. And you didn't see as much of that this week. At least I didn't really notice anything in the way of that. So it was more about just kind of not having the guys to win your one-on-one matchups, right? Not to beat their blocks and and to make tackles. And it kind of makes sense when you look at the personnel that's there, right? Like right now you could argue that they're probably without maybe their four or four of their five best run defenders like in that front seven i mean no ian williams which that's been the case all year obviously um no bowman now no uh glenn dorsey in this game and no deforest buckner in this game um who had been i think pretty pretty solid against the run i think the one guy that i you would throw in there as well um as being kind of a top run defender is quentin dial and he was the only one that we saw you know in the lineup this game so from a personnel standpoint you know they just don't have the guys up there that you would have expected going into the season um, and, and that's been a problem. I mean, they're just not able to win those blocks and, and kind of shed guys and, and make plays. Um, and then you mentioned to the inside linebacker play, which was just kind of awful and it was just really bad to watch. Um, Nick Ballore missed five tackles, I think in this game, um, at least Well, I had a missing five tackles in the first half. Yeah. I had him getting his first successful, like kind of, hey, I'm going to dart into the backfield and make a tackle um, at like one of the first plays in the second half. Um, he was really kind of boomer bust all game with a lot of bust initially uh, <laughs> and then a couple of booms. Yeah, I think he ended up with uh, with like five stops. So, you know, an equal number of stops to miss tackles. Um, but it was, you know, I don't know. It was just not great. Like he, he just uh, the stops, I think, came mostly late. And the missed tackles were just him, you know, kind of taking a chance and trying to make a play. And it's you're doing things that right. Like if this was Navarro Bowman or Patrick Willis that are doing these things, they probably make these tackles, right? They they have the ability level to kind of take some risks where you shouldn't otherwise like not. You kind of leave the the gap assignment that you have because you see an opening, you know that you can get back there and make a play, right? It's the same thing that we talked about last week with Armstead, where he did that swim move that kind of hopped a gap inside and it's like, okay, if you're J.J. Watt and you can do that and then bounce back and make the tackle still, that's fine. You do you. But if you can't make that play physically, like you can't do that because that compromises the defense. And all of a sudden, the guys behind you aren't in position to be able to to account for that kind of mix up. So we so saw some. Is this a case then where you want a high variance strategy? Like if, if you know your defense is going to be and we've talked about high variance strategies before in the past, we call them, you know, kind of. Uh, David strategies where it's like you know that you're inferior in terms of talent or or whatever so you try more high variance things to to try and get some of these stops do do you think David that this is one of those cases where the the defensive coordinator is thinking you know what we're we're undermatched we need some kind of spark and if this guy is going to knife in and he might miss a tackle but he also might get five stops yeah i i think if the if the ceiling was higher that would make sense, right? The ceiling for Nick Ballore is still like you're getting maybe average linebacker play. So it's like your your basement is way down there, right? Like it really kind of poor linebacker play. And then, yeah, on the good moments, he gets up to looking competent in, in league average. So, you know, if the highs were higher, then I think that would make sense. But uh, it's hard to, I think, justify that over somebody like Gerald Hodges, who isn't great. Like he's not... Uh, 
a fantastic linebacker by any means, but I think he's more consistent and he hovers closer to that competent line, you know, play in and play out as opposed to kind of being all over the place. You're not going to get a lot of huge plays from him, but I think you'll get more consistent, uh, you know, play. And and that's going to especially help in the run defense, I think. So talk to me a bit about about the disappearing Hodges, because I, I find this to be super interesting that his his snap count has kind of been all over the place. And in this game, he didn't really play a whole hell of a lot. And when he did play, he didn't spell Belor. Belor played 100 percent of the defensive snaps in this game. It was Will Hoyt that he was coming in and spelling. He ended up playing 11 snaps overall in the game. That's Gerald Hodges. Now, this is a player who, again, not spectacular, but, you know, kind of average to somewhat below average. And, and he's basically getting sat all game for Belor. So what do you think is the, the thought behind that? Because it seems to me like I want Will Hoyt and Hodges, Will Hoyt being a bit more of that thumper, taking on the lead blocker, and Hodges being the player who can kind of move around and, and is a bit more athletic, and yet that's not what the defense is doing. So what, what do you think is the reason for Gerald Hodges just not playing a whole lot? I mean, I honestly have no clue. I, I can't really explain it or think of anything that's, um, you know, kind of a logical progression to arrive at that place where, where you think that Nick Ballore is a better option than Gerald Hodges. I, I think Hodges, again, is is kind of pretty clearly the more consistent and more talented player um, at, at this point. I mean, he's been at, at the very least, you know, his pass coverage can be a little iffy at times, but uh, like you mentioned, he's more athletic and uh, I think is a much better run defender um, than, than Nick Ballore is at this point. So I don't know why they would be going that direction you know it didn't seem to be remember when like the bowman injury first happened they were just like okay next man up is will hoyt and then they just kind of switched everything right it's like all right now we're we're going a completely different direction from the top three linebackers that we had all throughout the offseason the preseason that were kind of clearly established as this is your inside linebacker rotation now we're starting two guys that weren't really a part of that conversation even so um, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It'll be interesting to see if they continue to go that way. If Belor continues to play the way that he did in this game. So you've got a disappearing Hodges. And, and at the end of the day, what's plaguing this defense is just missed tackles, which I was trying to look up some stats about whether or not Jason Tarver's defenses in Oakland uh, also suffered from missed tackling. But th- this is a team that's just now not super fundamentally sound. We saw this a little bit last year with Mangini, but I feel like it got better as the year went on. And and this year you still have, you know, missed tackles all over the place. And that's certainly not going to help you, especially when you're going against the likes of David Johnson. So I think so far, two biggest takeaways, right? Offensive line is not playing as bad as the stat sheet shows. And you've got a pass defense that's performing fairly well against Drew Stanton and the run defense that is getting shredded simply because they don't tackle well, they have poor inside linebacker play, and they have an underperforming defensive line. But at the end of the day, turnovers, and this is our third big takeaway, turnovers were the difference in this game. The Cardinals had three scoring drives directly off of turnovers that totaled a whopping 37 yards, but resulted in 17 points. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh, point-per-yard average. Yeah, I mean, this was a 12 point game, right? Like uh, it, it was a big deal with the outcome of this game because it wasn't really, I mean, even though the score got out of hand, I think uh, at one point it was what 31 to 14 there um, midway through the fourth quarter or so. It wasn't really like there wasn't that wide of a gap in the performance of these two teams. Like it really came down to Arizona had some very fortunate opportunities offensively to work with some short fields after these turnovers. I mean, you had, on the first one was a 21-yard drive that was one play that was the the Fitzgerald uh, touchdown down the sideline there then on the right-hand side um, that followed up the tipped interception by Clayus Campbell. So there's your one touchdown. They had another one um, that was on the opening drive of the second half after the 49ers fumbled the kickoff. That was a four-play, 14-yard drive, right? 14 yards. You cap that with a touchdown run by Johnson. Um, and then later on in the game, they had another four play six yard drive that resulted in a field goal that came after the Cooper interception. So, again, 37 yards on three drives uh, and you get 17 points out of that. Like that's that's some fortunate things happening for your offense. And when you look at what they did outside of those three drives that, that came off of turnovers, they really struggled to move the ball consistently. I mean, they only had two other competent drives 
Uh, there was one early in the third quarter that resulted in another Fitzgerald interception where they had six plays, 71 yards there. And then there was kind of the final nail in the coffin drive that was 12 plays, 76 yards. And uh, they just kind of just pounded the life out of the 49ers run defense in that game. I mean, Johnson and Ellington just kind of not picking up huge chunks of yardage. I mean, the really only big play on that drive was uh, actually the an early third down conversion where they hit Johnson on the wheel route out of the backfield there um, to, to convert that. But it was just consistently three, four, five, six yard gains, um, you know, on, in, in the run game there that kind of knocked the rest of the life out of that team and, and any hopes that they had of making some sort of comeback attempt. So outside of those two drives, they didn't really do anything offensively. It was what you would expect from an offense that was led by Drew Stanton, right? This was the last time we saw the 49ers defense look really good was against the Case Keenum led Rams, right? They, they've shown that at the very least when, they're playing these bad offenses, they can look good. And and the passing offense for Arizona um, was basically all Larry Fitzgerald. Like nobody else did anything. Um, Richard Robinson pretty much locked down John Brown and, and eliminated him from the game. Um, you know, Fitzgerald, there's no shame in that. He had six for 81 and two touchdowns. Like the dude's one of the best receivers in the game. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Like he's going to get his uh, on some plays. And sometimes he's just going to go up and make plays. Uh, and there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. But Nobody else did anything in this game from a receiving standpoint. Um, the only other decent play was, again, that 21-yard uh, catch by, by Johnson on that final drive. And it, it was just an offense that struggled to move the ball consistently but benefited from some some very short fields. And I think if you have a team, I mean, this is one of the problems, I think, with this 49ers team right now is they're very young and they kind of do these stupid things where they shoot themselves in the foot, right? You have the Bowder interceptions, and one of them is kind of unlucky, you know, like the, you have that tipped interception. That's just kind of a bad bounce. Um, you have the fumble. Like these are tough things to overcome when you don't have superior talent. And and that ultimately, again, was the, the difference in this game, I think. So those are the big three takeaways from the Cardinals game. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where this is, again, a winnable game, a very, very winnable game. But at this point, the team is not good enough to dig themselves out of a hole um, what because of poor quarterback play, um, especially against again, this is a Cardinals defense that is really, really good. This is not a, a scrub kind of defense. And especially when they can begin to pin their ears back, all of a sudden you see some bad things happen. But there were still a bright there were still bright spots. Uh, and this week, the spotlight player of the week, the bright spot is one Mr. Jeremy Curley. He caught eight of 13 targets from Glenn Babbert. Um, which is like catching 15 of 13 from a normal <laughs> quarterback. That's a very, very fun, interesting, not math-related line. Um, he got that's, past No, Lucas. that's a very exact science, okay? I did the math before the show. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It works out. Uh, he, uh, he caught passes against four different defenders, including Tyron Matthew, who moved back into a slot heavy role this game. He basically played slot, slot full-time almost. Um, and... and that I, I tweeted this video out as well, but he put Marcus Cooper in the freaking spin cycle. He his jab step to the inside and then coming back outside in the fourth quarter. I, I'm pretty sure that that Cooper like corkscrewed himself into the turf at Levi's. He is a permanent divot <laughs> in the actual turf. And and yeah, Curly is looking like a damn good receiver. And this is what we expected from Bruce Ellington this year. But instead, we're getting it from Jeremy Curley. And I know that we shouldn't be looking too much into the future, but I'm curious then to see what happens to Ellington next year when he's healthy. Um, now that you've got someone who basically took that job away from him in this offense. Um, but I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, and Ellington will probably get injured again. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> True. I mean, yeah, it's funny. So on the season now, I mean, he is far and away like leading the team in targets, receptions, yards, all that. Like, he nearly has, when you take the, the receiving yards, he has 304 yards so far, um, which is not great, right? This isn't like, still probably doesn't even rank in the top, I don't know, like 50 or, or more of uh, NFL wide receivers, but very clearly the number one there. You look at the next three guys, they barely pass him when you combine their yardage totals. They just kind of barely get ahead of him by about 50 yards or so. When you look at, it'd be Garrett Selleck, Quentin Patton, Torrey Smith. Um, each have just a little bit over 100 yards there. So uh, he's the only one that has been able to produce anything in, in this passing offense, really. I mean, it's it's been him and then a 75-yard play to Vance McDonald, and that's pretty much it. 
Um, there, there's not a whole lot else going on with this passing offense right now. So in, uh, you know, there's again, not many positives to pull away from what this team has been doing offensively this year, but Jeremy Curley is definitely one of them. Yeah. So Curley is balling out. He's playing well. Uh, and the last thing to wrap up the discussion is going to be the stat of the week. And that's from pro football focus against Dallas and Arizona. Uh, this is going to be Richard Robinson was targeted a combined eight times but allowed only four catches for 31 yards. He broke up three of the four inc- incompletions. So he's currently allowing 0.33 yards per cover snap. Uh, and Rashard Robinson had another great game here against the Cardinals. He is looking like the real deal and should really be the starter across from Jimmy Ward once Jimmy Ward returns. I think that's kind of the question, right? The The final, I think, discussion point that we'll really have in this one is what do you think happens once Jimmy Ward comes back? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Jimmy Ward is going to have a role and that he's going to kind of claim a starting position. It would be very surprising if that wasn't the case. So do you think, I guess, two questions. I think we both know what should happen, but what do you think will happen when that, uh, when Jimmy Ward comes back? So in case it's not obvious to listeners out there, what we think should happen is that Robinson and Ward are your starters. uh, And then you probably have Ward move inside when you go to nickel and then maybe have uh, someone like Brock come uh, out on the outside. Actually, I don't even think Brock should come in. I think it should be Dante Johnson that comes in uh, and plays. But what, what will happen, I think that coaches have their favorites for whatever reason. And they play those people because they think they're better. Dante Johnson played a lot of snaps last year. He acquitted himself well. I think he is the second or third best. Well, at this point, I think he's the third best corner on the roster. But for whatever reason, he's not in this coaching staff's good graces. Uh, I always get Reeser and Acker confused. One of them, I think, isn't even on the team anymore. That would be Acker. Uh, He's gone. Reeser is the only one you have to worry about. So Reeser is the only one that's left. So Reeser, I think at this point is above Johnson on the pecking order. So I think for whatever reason, you know, Johnson's not in the, in the coaching team's favor. Brock is. And and so I think what happens, I think you get back to the status quo and Richard Robinson either begins to sit or I think that, you know, I don't know. That's what I think probably will happen to be honest with you. I think Brock ends up playing, um, because they probably like his veteran savvy um, and they like that he's a locker room leader. And, you know, that's that's probably what will happen. And that blows because it means that a talented player is not playing, uh, despite the fact that he is clearly outplaying everyone else in the field right now. Yeah, I, I again, definitely agree on the what should happen. I think the what will happen is kind of a combination of of what you were saying and our best case, which is that Brock is probably... And Brock and Ward are the starters, right? When you go into um, any sort of base situation, they're the two that remain on the field. But when you have three or more DBs on the field, or three or more cornerbacks, I guess I should say, um, I think that Robinson comes in as that third guy. Like, I think he's pretty clearly established himself as that guy. So he's still going to have, I think, a significant role, right? He's still going to probably play two-thirds of the snaps or so, however much that they're in. Uh, you know, sub packages throughout the game, which is, again, that that's really the new base. Like, that's where they're going to spend the majority of their time in most games. So I think we still see him on the field. Um, but he it's really what should be happening when one of those DBs, one of those cornerbacks has to come off the field. And that, I, I think, is where um don't really agree with where the four Niners will probably go in this situation. That about does it this week. I'm going to go ahead and kick off the outro music. I think we should have a call to action this week too, huh? Because uh, you know it's, it's the end of it's the end of a show. We oh yeah, have... didn't we? Didn't we? Uh, were we going to do blame Babbert or are we moving? I don't know. We were going to do like blame Babbert. I think. I think uh, either yeah. Gab or Hub uh, talked uh, blame. I think it's blame blame Babbert. Yeah, that one. That's, yeah, that's blame the Babbert. Yep. Yep. Alliteration. So it's going to be. <laughs> alliteration and blame game and things switching all at once i mean it's just it's a lot in one it's a lot of the things one. that we love you know puns alliteration so it's a yeah. it's a winning call to action i think or all of the things maybe not all of things so that about does it for this early edition uh don't listen to this instead of watch football go watch football right now go set your fantasy lineups 
and uh, definitely tune in to this recap. Well, we're still going to do, uh, I guess this is the bye week technically. So we're still going to tackle uh, a show sometime no, not in the, the next week. couple days. We got Buffalo coming up. Oh, that's right. We yeah, got so Buffalo. we got Buffalo um, coming up next Sunday. So a week from from today now. So we'll have, I think, a preview probably at the normal Wednesday time slot. I would imagine no reason to really yep. um, move from there. Yeah, it's kind of nice having this. Uh, we'll get the bye week in two weeks. So we get at Buffalo next week, Tampa Bay the following week, then your bye in week eight. So we'll get to kind of do this uh, one one game recap, one game preview sort of episodes um here soon which was actually kind of nice real quick what uh what game are you excited to watch this sunday today well we'll go with uh not necessarily excited to watch but the game that i'm going to watch uh is going to be the the Bengals game um which i don't even remember who they are playing this is how prepared that i am um so yeah i'll be doing uh i'll be doing that game which is a late start for PFF, and then also doing a review of the Seattle game, I think. Um, I don't know. I'm going to be doing work stuff, so I won't we'll really see. have it. Yeah. I'll probably have Red Zone on here. We're, we're still going to... We're done well before the uh, the initial kickoff here, so probably just going to roll with Red Zone for the morning and then get to work come 4 o'clock. Yep. Probably going to Red Zone it all day today as well. So thanks for tuning in to another episode. Definitely catch us on twitter you can find me at better rivals david newman they can find you at david newman and he changes his avatar and name uh for the old glenn babbert train so you'll know it's thanks me. for tuning in as always uh, and as always go niners I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.